We come now to part 21 of our series, and last time we looked at the wives and husband passage at the end of Ephesians 5, and we focused on the human relationship that the passage is describing, but at least half of the passage is talking about our relationship with Christ. And I would like to focus on that today because it is such an important theme. And we are going to look at this passage, and we're going to start by focusing on what the passage says. Then we're going to see it in the context of the whole Bible and what the story is about this Christ marrying the church idea, and then end up by asking how we can respond personally from this. So let's start off by looking at our passage, and it's on the second side of your sheet there. Um, I put the sheet in like chronological order through the Bible, so we're actually starting in the middle here. And uh, we're going to read then in, from verse 25 onwards in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. Now, I'm going to make some comments as we're going through. The word holy, as you've heard me say before, is primarily means being dedicated. The, the, in English, we tend to think of holy as being like pure and, 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 uh, and without sin. But in the Bible, holiness is being completely dedicated to a purpose. So in the Old Testament, a, 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 a pot, for example, or some ointment could be holy because it's only used for God's service. And so, and God is holy because he is completely dedicated to his purposes. So in order to do that, we have to be cleansed. Uh, but he says, by washing of water through the word. Now, you might immediately think of baptism, but that's actually not probably what's in view. The idea is that the word, the spoken, the message, the truth of grace has washed you. And when you hear God's amazing grace and love for you, it's like a sweet washing that flows over you and washes away all of your guilt and washes away all of your self-condemnation. And this washing through Jesus' words spoken to you has washed you clean. Uh, he may present himself, may, that he may present to himself the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Is that how you feel today? You're splendid without spot or wrinkle. Well, I'm, I'm, I can't claim that, but this body's going to be gone, and the new body will be in splendor, that she may be holy and without blemish. And then, um, verse, I've skipped verse 28, because that refers back to the husbands. Uh, verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now, this is curious because the argument here is that you look after your own physical body because it's part of you. It's you. It's not someone else. It's part of you. This is the argument. And so Jesus does the church because we are like part of him, like we are, we are part of his actual body. This is what it seems to be saying. Um, it, because this is the parallel that it's making. Uh, it's saying something um, 
about Jesus and about our relationship with him that is, is really, really uh, quite strong. Um, and then it says, we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and scroll down here, and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I speak with reference to Christ and the church. So this is, this is a quite extraordinary. Um, so let's look, verse 30, it says, we are members of his body. Now, uh, the word members, we can think of like church members and so on, but actually that's not what it means. It means like limbs. That's the old use of this word. You, it's still preserved in expressions like dismembering. If somebody's dismembered, then their limbs are removed. Like we are Christ's members means we're actually like parts of his body. We're actually like, like you know, his legs and arms and whatever, but parts of his body. That's, and he's, this is actually saying that we are part of him. Now, this is a level of unity that I think is beyond our comprehension, particularly when it quotes, the two shall become one flesh. Because this, uh, this is um, true to a limited extent. I mean, in the marriage act, the husband and wife like are physically united. Um, but what it's talking about seems to be even more than this. And I honestly think that the truth of this passage is beyond our current comprehension. And when we get to heaven, we'll understand what this is about. So I'm sorry if I can't explain this to you today. I'm, you just have to, have, to, have, to have to wait. But Paul is saying that the truth is profound. And if Paul says it's profound, then I think we have to go with it, that this is something profound. Anyway, but he does say it because he wants us to get it, that there is a union between Christ and his church that is beyond what we can really comprehend. And in some ways, we will be actually blended with him in some sort of unity that's going to exist. And uh, now I think to really understand this, we have to see it in the context of the whole Bible. And I wanted to give you um, like the big picture of, of everything it says. And just about everything that it says is on your sheet here. And I've gone through the maybe one or two places I could have pulled in, but these are the, these are the principal ones. And I'm going to go through them here because I think they are so important. So this is, we've quickly looked at the passage. Now we're going to look at the context of the whole Bible. So first of all, the Old Testament. And uh, I'm going to go through roughly here in, in the chronological order. Uh, Ezekiel 16, verse 8. And this is here speaking of uh, God when he brought the nation out of e Egypt. And he's describing how he made a, a covenant with them, made an agreement with them at, at Sinai. Then I passed by you and watched you, noticing that you had reached the age for love. I spread my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I swore a solemn oath to you and entered into a marriage covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And this is talking about the covenant made with Israel at Sinai. And then I bathed you in water, washed the blood off you, and anointed you with fragrant oil. I dressed you in embroidered clothing. I put f and put fine leather sandals on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with jewelry. 
I put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. You were adorned with gold and silver, while your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidery. You ate the finest flour, honey, and olive oil. You became extremely beautiful and attained the position of royalty. So this is love language God is using towards Israel. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty. Your beauty was perfect because of the splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the sovereign Lord. And you can think of the times of David and Solomon when the, 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 the kingdom came to its climax. But you trusted in your beauty and capitalized on your fame by becoming a prostitute. You offered your sexual favors to every man who passed by so that your beauty became his. And this is alluding to the foreign gods that they started worshiping. You took some of your clothing and made for yourself decorated high places. Those will be places to worship idols on the top of hills. You engaged in prostitution on them. You went to him to become his. And so God is grieving over this love that he's had for them. And so this is how the story starts. He's this, this love that he has for Israel. He sets his heart on them. And uh, Psalm 45 is just, uh, it's a beautiful psalm. And what's extraordinary about Psalm 45, it's probably the clearest place in the whole of the Old Testament where God, you, see, you see plurality in God. That is not just one person, but there are three people within within the one person of the Trinity. And so you see two people here. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This is talking about Jesus. Your throne, O God, now he's being called God. Jesus is being called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of, of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Do you see the problem here if you don't, if you don't believe that Jesus is God? Because God, God has exalted you, but you are a God with a throne forever and ever. So this is God. Uh, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. At your right hand stands the queen, a queen here for Jesus in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider the queen will desire your beauty. And then the psalm continues talking about the queen, whose we, 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 we now know is um, God's people. Another love song, um, and Song of Solomon, some people say, oh, it's just a love song. But I think, it's, I think it's more than that. I think it's a love song that is there in the Bible because it's God's love for his people. And so this words alternate between the speaker being the man and the speaker being a woman. It speaks, starts, the verse 1, the speaker's the woman. She says, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And the man says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. And then the woman replies, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to his banqueting house. His banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. 
His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Just beautiful love poetry. And this, I believe, is love language between the Lord and his people. And uh, then we have a more explicit language about this breakup that happened. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jesus of Jerusalem, says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And then chapter 3. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. And then Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has, given, has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And so this is the call to her. She's in captivity, and he's calling her back to, from captivity. And this is the final promise here that he's going to bring her back and restore her. Isaiah 62, verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and that's a word in Hebrew, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, uh, and, in your, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And that's referring to the land. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Aren't these beautiful words? Can you see God's heart in this? Like these are not like factual statements about I love you. This is like passion and the grief that they've turned their back on him after he's shown them so much love. He's given them so much and yet they turned away. And so you can see God's heart in this. And uh, it's, it's hard to, to read this without being touched deeply by the beauty of it. Um, but... When we start thinking about this question of the bride of Christ, something comes up for me, and I'm sure it does for you. What's going on here? How can the eternal, omnipresent God, the one who created the heavens and the earth with just his word, how can he actually be matched with humans? Like, we're so different. Like, there's just totally different extremes. How can we actually have some sort of balance in here. It doesn't seem like it could work. Um, we're nothing to God, surely. Um, well, I think that uh, in the end, we have to agree that one of the main reasons that God created humanity to start with was as a bride for Christ. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't help me understand it. Yeah, but this seems to be the case. It seems that right from the beginning, the plan of God was, I'm going to create a bride for my son, or for, for, for Jesus, and he, we're, going to, we're going to have a bride for him. And um, you, you, may, you may have a reaction, um, why would Jesus want to join himself to me for eternity? And this is a very difficult question until we start looking at the perfect revelation of God in Jesus Christ as he comes to earth. And what is extraordinary about Jesus on earth is how he became attached to people and loved them and deeply became connected 
with humans. And I want to take you through some verses on this that I think are just deeply touching. And first of all, John 3, this is John the Baptist speaking. This is like the, the announcement of what's going to happen. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John is the friend. He's introduced the bridegroom. Oh, one thing, those, all that Old Testament language about loving a marriage to God's people, it was to the nation of Israel. But we saw earlier on that the dividing wall between, uh, which was the law between Israel and, and the Gentiles has been destroyed in the death of Christ. And Jesus says, those who weren't so far off are now brought near. Those who are called forsaken are now brought in. And there's very, very clear making the two into one language there. And so when we have the bride of Christ, we have to see this in the context of the two being made one. And the body of Christ is now one. It's the two brought together. And that, that you couldn't get clearer than the earlier chapters in Ephesians that the body of Christ, his people, are one people. He's he's in, his, in his death, he's destroyed that wall of partition. So let's look at, then at this John 14. Um, and this is uh, Jesus promising them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now he's saying this to the twelve. He's saying this to his disciples. I want you to be with me forever. And these words are written because they're spoken to us as well. He's saying, I've made a place for you because I want you to be with me forever. So I've already got the room ready. It's ready there because I want you with me forever. One of the most special um, verses, I think, in the whole of the New Testament is John 15. And uh, it says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Wow. Like the same kind of love that exists between the Trinity, Jesus is giving to us, that intensity. Abide in my love. And that, and that means just like, just enjoy it. Just, just spend time in that love. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does no, not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For, I, for all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Now, this word friends might not mean a lot special to us in English. But in Greek, the word friend is a word that you only use for somebody whose company you really enjoy. So when it talks about Jesus and the Father, their love for one another is this kind of love. Like, it's not the kind of love where, you know, you just give something and, and it's, you know, I feel so sorry for you. I'm going to give you something in a loving way. That's, you know, that's, that's what they call agape love. This love here is a love that is because I'm getting something out of it. 
I, this, I'm not, this isn't just a one-way thing. I'm loving you, and I'm getting something back from it. This is extraordinary. Jesus is saying, like, I actually enjoy your company. I actually want to be with you. And, um, and now here's the most extraordinary of all of these verses with Jesus. And this doesn't come through in the translation, um, and I'll explain to you why. He said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And the word um, in, the, in Greek, the word for lust is not negative. It could be used either way. It just means a passionate desire. Now, when it's used for something wrong, we translate it lust. But it's the same word of this really, really deep passion is used here of Jesus' love for his disciples. It's the same word. And obviously, we wouldn't translate it, and he's lusted after his disciples, because in English, that's got a negative connotation. But that's the same word that's being used. It's like a passionate love, and it's actually written there twice. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. With passionate love, I've passionately wanted to eat this, this Passover with you. Why is this? Because they are so special to him. And I wanted to spend some time on this because I think Jesus is helping us to see that this love is actually real. That on earth, he actually was connected to people and wanted to spend time with them. They meant a lot to him. And this is going to be the situation we are in for gl in glory if we belong to Christ. A love where we are seen deeply. He sees everything about us and he wants us to be near him. And, you know, you and I, we say, I can't understand this. Why would he want me? But this is the scripture. They cannot get clearer than this. And I wanted to give you so many texts because I want you to walk out of this agreeing, okay, I don't understand it, Andrew, either, but I'm going to agree with this because it's such a core teaching of the scriptures. And then I've got one more, which isn't in the gospel, but it's about Jesus in the life of, uh, in the life of Jesus. And in Hebrews 12, verse 2, Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, like, <laughs> this joy is so much, this joy of my people, that the pain of the cross, oh, it's nothing to me. It's just nothing compared with what I'm going to have in Jesus. And uh, so, so this, is, this is quite extraordinary what, what God has for us. So those are the... the uh, times during the life of Christ. And now we're going to look at the future wedding. And there's a little bit of a preamble in uh, 2 Corinthians 11. And Paul is, is trying to reason with the Corinthians. And he uses some language that, that you know, you, you don't expect. Um, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit, from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And this is, this is uh, such a different language. I mean, in the, in the last few years, there's been, very, been some very sad church failures that have happened. Some, some well-known churches have, have had 
some really major problems. And we can say, oh, that's horrible, that what disrepute it brings onto the gospel and so on. But do we say, but this is, they're supposed to be the pure virgin dedicated to Jesus. Look what, what does he think of it? And we don't look at it from Jesus' viewpoint when there's a church failure and say, look, these people would, were supposed to be his perfect bride. How sad he must be to see what's happened to them. So this is where, how Paul is approaching them. He's not saying, look, I put this much work into you, and look, you're, you're, you're destroying it all. He says, what does Jesus think? You are, you are dedicated to him. <clears throat> Revelation 19, now we're moving on to the end here. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the, his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the word, the true words of God. And then moving on, Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw a loud, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. <clears throat> then came one of the seven angels, came and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. That is us, beloved. That is us coming down, shining like the sun. So what are we going to say about this? How are we going to respond? We looked at the, uh, the context of the whole Bible. What are we going to say now? And uh, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to just give you some thoughts that what we can, what we can do here. And uh, I would say the first thing is to be hungry for more. Be hungry for more. Want more of God. Realize there is so much more that is open to you. Don't just come to God when you're praying with a prayer list. And prayer lists, are, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with prayer lists. They're good, uh, particularly when you check them off and praise, give, give testimony to other people. But don't come to him just with that, but enjoy him. There's one preacher I heard saying, waste time with God. You know, if you love somebody, you waste time with them. You know, you just hang out with them. Well, we weren't doing anything. We just hung out. You know, waste time with God. Just spend some time with him. 
I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, but several times in my life, I've had, I've felt the very presence of Christ with me in such a tangible way, it felt like his arms were around me. And it's been times where I was seeking him, wanting to spend more time with him. And I would say, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, not that, you know, sometimes he just gives out of grace and there's no, it's not just a it's not just for reward, but God does love it when we seek him. And he wants you to have more. He wants you to experience more. And if you are hungry and ask for more, he wants to give you more of an experience of his love, of a sense of his love for you. <clears throat> now, when let me tell you what happens when I spend time. I'm going to spend some time with Jesus now. I'm just going to go somewhere quiet to spend some time. I just invite his presence. And you know what happens? A little voice says, why would he want to spend time with you? <laughs> look, look, what about that thing you, you were, those thoughts you were having yesterday? What about this? You, he's disgusted by you. You know what I'm talking about here? And these voices come in because Satan hates that. And you have to just say, get behind me, Satan. But you can also say, the new me is perfect. That's the old me. That's the shell. That's the part that's the, of the flesh. But that's the, Jesus is, sees me. He sees the true me, the new me. I'm perfect. You are perfect, my love, he says. No spot he sees in you. And that's what we were reading, wasn't it? In those verses in Ephesians, there's not a spot or blemish. And that is the true us. So just dismiss those, because those words will come up. And the thoughts of what I did yesterday, what I did, those will come up. And just dismiss them and say, that's not. That I'm in the name of, of Jesus, go because this is this is not part of what's happening right now. Um, uh, he will attack you, and uh, I want you to just see yourself as Jesus sees you. Um, let no one condemn you. Jesus has made you pure. Uh, I would say there is no substitute with, for spending time with your beloved. There's no quick fix, you know, two minutes a day to be closer to Jesus. No, it actually requires time. It doesn't work with physical relationships, the two minutes a day thing, it, it, human relationships. You've got to spend time with him. And I would say, um, I, would, I would like to encourage you to lift up your eyes with hope for a glorious eternity. Those verses we read in Revelation, you're going to be there. You are going to experience this. This is your future. And stuff now that you're worried about, it won't even be like a shadow in your, in your worries because you will, you, you will be so full of the joy of Jesus. That is if you, if you are his follower. If you're, his follow, if you're not his follower this morning, then the good news is that Jesus' arms are still open. He still says, come, come. And the last words of the book of Revelation, after where I read, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come, come and, 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 and enjoy this and take Jesus as your Lord. And this is open to you. Um, so um, one, one thing that you might want to do and, and people don't tend to do this nowadays, but I would suggest you try it, is writing poetry to Jesus. Writing poetry to Jesus. So uh, there was a little boy who actually lived in Toronto at the beginning of the 1800s. And we're not exactly sure. It was somewhere between the ages of 12 and 16. Here in Toronto, he came to know Jesus. 
And he was so full of this love that he wrote a poem which he sent to his aunt in Los Angeles. And she, has, she kept it, and we still have it today. We still have this poem. And I'm going to read this poem to you. <clears throat> My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. And here's this little boy writing this poem out to his Lord. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. He only lived to the age of 27. You may say, well, that's sad. Well, maybe, but maybe not, because he got to enjoy the last verse here sooner than I might expect. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. So why don't you, I mean, you might not get yours saved for centuries and published all over the world. Keep it, you know, but that's not the point. The point is you're writing it for Jesus. He was writing this for Jesus, not for publication. And write something for Jesus. And just write some words. It needn't even be poetry, just like, like some love words to him. Um, this is good. This is a good thing. This is what David did when he was a little boy out with his harp in the hills looking after sheep. Do it, and just to get that love flowing. And I'm going to end by reading Philippians chapter 1. And this was the experience of Paul. Paul had some intimate moments with Jesus. He had some times where he saw Jesus when he, when he was first saved, but other times Jesus came to him. And he says, My confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, even now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. Now, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean productive work for me, yet I don't know which I prefer. You mean, does he prefer to die? I feel torn between the two because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Was Paul afraid of dying? No, actually, he says, I'd actually rather die because I'd be with Christ. Okay, maybe I should hang on for your sake. But like, he was so excited about joining Jesus for eternity. It's more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. So my prayer is that all of us would, would have that, that strength of belief and of anticipation that Paul had here, that the love of Jesus is so real to him that we can't wait. We're just longing for that time when he, as his spotless bride, will be united with him and we'll go and find the place that he's been saving for us. Can you imagine Jesus saying, here, look what I've got for you. Uh, here, Joshua, see, I've got this place for you here. Here, you can sit here. Yeah, and I've got, I've got somewhere... 
over, over here for you, Hannah, and I've got somewhere here for you, John. And, you know, he's got a place for all of us, and it's been, he's been saving for us. And maybe he's decorated it just how you know we'd like it, because he loves us so much. So my prayer for you is that the reality of what your hope is will so pervade you that, that, that following Jesus in this life will be, will be easy, because... Now, what can temptation can tempt you when you, what you have is so much better? So let's just pray, shall we? And I'll ask the worship team to come out. Heavenly Father, we, we want to thank you right now for the indescribable love that you have for us. And Jesus, we want to tell you that we are absolutely overwhelmed. We cannot understand this love, but we, we believe it. And we ask that you... You, each one of us, you, you give us encounters with you where we, we, put, we know your presence in a more real way that captivates us with your love and makes us, like the Apostle Paul here, just look forward to being with you forever. Lord, make this truth real to each one of us, so real that it transforms our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I gave you a handout with so many verses on it is because I'm hoping that you will use it as a, as a, a point of departure, of, of, of stepping out into a prayer time with Jesus. And my, my hope is that you, that my suggestion is that you actually underline it as you're praying through it and, uh, and uh, just use that as a, as a point of engaging with what God says about you in his love.